Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project, a podcast to learn a bit more about remarkable individuals. In this episode, I have a chance to talk to an Olympian and two-time Pan-American gold medalist, Howard Stoop. He served until recently as Director of Legal Affairs at the, Olymp at the International Olympic Committee in Lausanne, Switzerland. He has had an interesting journey, and in our conversation you will hear about what it feels to compete at the highest levels representing your country, as well as how he has used some of these experiences throughout his career at the International Olympic Committee. He also tells us about what is his day today what his day-to-day -day work entailed. He has a very interesting perspective on a variety of issues. So please listen in. Hello, Howard. How are you? I really want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to you. It's not often that you get a chance to talk to a two-time uh, gold medalist, uh, Panam. Uh, yes. Uh, so I'm really excited and thank you for hosting me. How are you? It's my pleasure, Rodolfo, and I look forward to having a, a fruitful conversation. I, I really want to hear so many things from your life, but let's start from the beginning. Uh, You're originally from Canada. Yes, I was born and raised in Montreal. Actually, I was born, uh, here I am giving my, my age away, <laughs> but why not? I was born in 1955. I'm the oldest of five children. Five, okay. Yes. And uh, there's one thing, I, you know, I very seldom speak about this, but as I get older, you know, you look back on your life and you wonder. I actually had a serious accident when I was nine months old. Yes. I was burnt. I pulled the plug on the kettle and boiling water came down on me. And uh, it burnt a, a fair part of my body. I don't know the percentage, maybe, I don't know, 5%, whatever. But um, I ended up spending three months in the hospital. Why am I saying this is because I think that that may have had a bigger effect on my life than I sometimes realize. I, of course, do not have any conscious memories of that. This was when I, you were... Nine months, nine old, months old. Three months in the hospital. And I think it made me kind of into a fighter. Um, not that I'm looking for fights, but, <laughs> but you know, I don't, I'm not one to give up. I'm, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm always there pushing and... and um, Is this, so, uh, so this resilience, would you call it a resilience or...? I definitely think I'm resilient. I've been told I'm resilient. Yeah, I think I had to be resilient, you know, after that accident to come back. I mean, they said that... Uh, The doctor said that I would uh, maybe not even walk properly because really? it was some was on burn is on my uh, rear end, but uh, in the end I played sport at a very high level, so it didn't bother me. When I was young, it bothered me a bit aesthetically. When I was like in high school, uh, it's funny we're talking about this, but you know, even like when you're young and you have to take showers together and stuff, you know. You were but conscious. The, yeah, yeah, I was, I was, but now it doesn't bother me. In the least, it's almost like I'm a survivor, you know? But uh, you mentioned that you didn't think of the significance this had in your life until, was it recently? I'd say maybe in the, on and off in the last five, ten years, maybe, I, or, you know, uh, where I, I wonder, I said, you know, I wonder what, if any, effect it did have, and I think it did. Um, I don't know, maybe moving on, un unless you want. So, um, uh, but uh, yeah. just to... Uh, I just want to hear a bit, a bit more about your life growing up. So you, you were in Montreal. 
You had you had a family of five uh, yeah. brothers and sisters. How was life growing up? Uh, for me, life was very good, but I think it had a lot to do with my attitude. I mean, I think someone could make a heaven out of a hell and a hell out of heaven. Yeah. I think it's so much attitude. I'm not saying that it was hell. I had a really good life. I loved both my parents very much. Um, there was a lot of love in the house, but there was some conflict as well. Okay. And, um, you know, I dealt with it the, the best that, that I could. Um, I had, I was very close with my father. I spent a lot of time, like, helping him work. He was, What did he, do? Uh, he had a very kind of, you know, menial task. He was a cutter. Basically, he would lay up material. Uh, for a company, and then he would take this big cutting knife and cut the material. Then the material would be given to people to to sew together. And one day, apparently, he just grabbed me and he pulled my shorts off and he ripped them apart and he decided that he was going to go into his own business. <laughs> and he manufactured, you know, low-end items himself. And I'd spend many weekends and Saturdays helping him, uh, sorry, many weekends and even weekdays going with him. He'd bring... Um, the cut-up goods to home workers who would sew them up, and he'd throw them down to me from the balcony. I'd put them in the car. Uh, my dad was also a, a bit tormented. Mm -hmm. um, I, I repeat again, he had, uh, he's one of the people I respect the most who, who I've ever met in my life because yeah. he was very high-valued and honest. But he was also a bit tormented, and you also didn't mess with him either. So it was an incredible experience growing up in that um, environment. Were, were you aware at that early age about the, this uh, fact that you say that he was tormented, or this was later? That you... uh, maybe I realized it more later. And, but it's funny, I could feel his pain. Yeah. Don't ask me how. I, somehow I felt his pain. It was a bit different with my siblings. They didn't really... I don't think, feel his pain the way I did. And we used to sometimes, when I was like in my teenage years, you know, we would talk and he would be negative. And I'd say, but dad, and I'd always be positive. And then he'd come back with something negative. And, 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 and then I'd come back positive. And the end up was after two hours, we would kind of make a full circle. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And end up where we started. And, um, and this happened many times. And I remember... After he died uh, in, tw in 2003, it's been a while, I remember saying to myself, I said, you know, if that would have happened now, like when I was a bit more mature or after I had kind of lost him, after he died, all I would have done was just went up to him, taken him in my arms and said, Dad, I love you. And that's it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have gone into any sort of conversation in circles like that with him anymore. And again, why am I saying that? Uh, again, I like talking about things that people find, you know, interesting, amusing, and maybe can learn from. But, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because, I mean, I, this is something that I, I've been a father for like seven years. And I've understood a lot about my parents that I didn't before. Yeah. And you hearing say this, like... I mean, I, I'm just starting to get these realizations, but you hearing say this, like, I think it's a normal path. You just understand your parents and you are way more forgiven to them than you were when you were younger. Yeah, I think when you have your own children, yes. maybe you understand better. But I also want But it's not like something that 
How did this come to you? Was it like a process or something that just like... You know, that's an interesting question. I think it's also who you are. You know, some people are, are very warm, affectionate, giving, and others are less so. So maybe it came to me also because, as I said, in the house, sometimes there was such love um, and other times there was, there was conflict. And, and we were, it's funny, we were seven of us, you know, with the, my parents and my the, uh, five children, and we had one bathroom. Now, I guess many people, you know, across the world, uh, there's many more people sharing just one bathroom. Yes. But for us, it, it, it was just... Um, Like, it was, logistically, it was, it was it, even complicated. Yeah. And I remember just to tell a slip in one funny story, I was like studying and my sister, one of my sisters was in the bathroom. I have one brother. One of my sisters was in the bathroom and I heard my brother yell, get out of the bathroom or I'm going to piss on the door. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was, you know, doing my homework in the living room and, and just kind of ignoring it. Like they were playfully fighting. All of a sudden, Rodolfo, I hear the noise of someone urinating on a door. Like the, like I get up and my brother was peeing on the door. It was yeah, hysterical. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. No, that, 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 uh, it's true. I mean, it, but it was, no one got angry. It was just, we were very uh, sort of open, pragmatic. You know, you said what you felt. And uh, this was on the side of your father. What about your mother? My mother was, I would say, in some ways more stable than my father. But my father was kind of more creative and, and more perhaps intellectual. Hmm. Although with age, I find my mother is doing very well. She's, she's now actually 86. She, um, what did she do at the time? At first she was a bookkeeper. Okay. And then with five kids, <laughs> you can imagine, you, you her job was just yeah. to stay home and yeah. take care of the kids and the household. She also did a little bit the books of my father's business. business. Yeah, yes. Exactly. And uh, like, what was the, the dynamic between you and your brothers and sisters growing up? Uh, you would be like who in the, in the family? You know... Um, I would say all in all the dynamics was, was, was excellent, very good to excellent. Um, although there was a big age difference between myself and my youngest sisters. After me, I had a sister three years younger, a brother nine years younger, and then twin um, sisters who were 68, actually only thir 13 years younger. But... I, I, you know, I didn't get to spend as much time with them. And then when I was about 17, 18, I went away to school to Simon Fraser, British Columbia. We can talk about that perhaps very shortly. And then I, I moved to be near McGill University in the student ghetto. But there was always love and closeness between us. And there still is. I obviously don't see them as much now that I'm living in Switzerland yeah, and they're, they're still in here. North America. They're, all back they're in uh, essentially Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, and New York. Okay. Um, but we're still, there, there, is, there is a lot of love between us. I see. Uh, well. I mean, just one thing I will say, you know, uh, my, my next youngest sister's three-year difference, there was a period where I felt that whenever we fought, it was always my fault, you know? Yes. <laughs> but I guess that's normal because when you're the older child uh, especially if you're a boy and 
older and, and, and with a younger uh, sister, you know, the older person is expected to, to, you know, just like an adult is expected to behave more properly vis-a-vis -vis a child. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah, but that, that's pretty normal. It, I see it in my house every day. Uh, when did you get the interested in sports? Was it then? You know, I always love sport. I don't know why. I always love sport. I used to always fight with my father. I mean, fight. I mean, wrestle and play in the bed when I was like three, four, five years old. And um, I don't know. It's funny because my dad wasn't really a big sports person. I mean, he was the type he would place soccer and if someone kicked him in in the shin he would then get into a fist fight <laughs> you know but um i just always love sport and um so from as far as back as i can remember i was just constantly playing sport and and then it led to the point where when i got into high school like in elementary school there were short seasons like the beginning there was a soccer season then there was a, the the uh, basketball season then there was the the wrestling season the volleyball season the track and field but in high school um when i uh, the seasons the sports seasons were longer so at the beginning of the year it was either uh or in the middle it was either wrestling or basketball and since i'm not very tall i gravitated towards wrestling and i started to do really well in wrestling and that became my my sport that, that you're, I eventually like you excelled in yeah and uh it was in high school uh when you went to university you continued doing uh wrestling yes i i i started wrestling actually maybe even the first time When I was, uh, I don't know, maybe eight or ten, I think my uncle took me to the to the Y, and and I just wrestled a little bit. I had a natural talent, I think, because I used to fight, you know, fight, say fight. I used to wrestle with my dad in the bed, and he used to, uh, and even little things. He'd get me sometimes. I know the Mrs. Silly and what what he called the sweat box. He would just wrap me up in the covers, and at first I'd fight, and then I realized it's no use fighting. I'm just starting to get really hot. And then I, you know, it was, it was just interesting. And I got a good feel for how to use my body. So I started to excel in wrestling and then it became my, my sport. And um, I went to the uh, Junior World Championships in 1975 in, in Bulgaria. That was like fascinating for me. Um, in 76, I competed in the Montreal Olympic Games. In fact, there's an interesting story for that one. Um, And this was while I was I was doing engineering. I'd already started engineering school. How did you? Uh, we can come back to that, but I want to hear about the balance. How do you balance performing like at a high level in sports and your studies? You know, the truth is, Rodolfo, they probably both suffered a little bit. But if I have regrets, it's more so that my wrestling suffered because of my going to school than that my schooling suffered because I was spending time wrestling. Why do I say that? Because I still passed at school and I passed well. Yeah. Whereas wrestling, maybe instead of coming, uh, you know, fourth or third, maybe I would have come second or first. I mean, I did win some big competitions, but at the Montreal Olympics, um, yeah, see, I don't want to go into too much detail. A few months before the Montreal Games, we were training in Europe. I was still living in Canada, obviously. And I got appendicitis and they operated on me like within hours of me going to the hospital. And um, the doctor said, I will not be ready for the games. Mm -hmm. This was in April. And I was ready for the games. 
uh, and I competed in the games, but I missed out on very important training yeah. in Europe. It, you know, it's uh, that's where you get tough when you wrestle against tough guys who kick your butt. It makes you tougher, you know. Uh, maybe different from other sports. Let's say if you're running, you know, of course, if you compete against fast people, it may push you. But when you're wrestling, I mean, you're actually touching your opponent. It makes you tougher if he's going to thump you a little bit. So I competed in the Olympics. I was very disappointed with my performance there because I got, my, uh, I got beaten thoroughly in the first match, which um, happened, I mean... Of course, it didn't help what I explained about my yeah. appendix. And, and even as I said, the doctor said, I should not, I cannot wrestle. I said, stupidly, I said, if it tears open, I said, you know, the, the cut, will I know? He said, yes. You know, I mean, there's no way I wasn't going to wrestle in the Olympics. And how, how did it feel to represent your country in your country? Oh, I, I'll, I'll answer that in 10 seconds. But my first match, who did I draw? Because, you, you know, you draw yeah, marbles yeah, yeah. from that. The fellow... I still remember his name. I mentioned it to punish myself. Casimir Lipian from Poland. He won the gold medal. So my okay. first match was against the eventual gold medalist. I actually lost the uh, second match against a guy who came fourth. Um, I also cut a lot of weight for that competition. I was like kind of skin and bones. But anyway, so that's... Uh, you just asked me another question. How, how did it feel to represent your country you know, like, it, at that highest was, level in your country? Oh, fabulous. I remember uh, still like it was yesterday... The Olympic Village was right near the stadium. And we actually walked from the Olympic Village into the stadium, all the teams, you know, in the right order. And um, it was awesome. I mean, just the, 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 the streets were lined up by people who weren't able to get tickets for the opening ceremonies. And I was just so proud of myself. Actually, I get a little emotional even thinking uh-huh, about it. I'm mean, not proud of myself. It was just like so touching and, and the, the intensity, the energy, and then the opening ceremonies were just, uh, you know, truly memorable. I remember the music that was played, very solemn, strong music. So, and some people said, oh, that's too bad. You're in the Olympics and they're in your home city. That had nothing to do with it. it, it the Olympics were at least as good in my home city, maybe even better, yes. but definitely not worse than if they would have been in any other country. I mean, I stayed in the Olympic Village. They were the Olympics. Montreal, you know, I mean, I was representing Canada, but I'm mean, saying it didn't matter that they were in my home city. On the contrary, it was kind of cool. I would have liked to have done, to you know, travel. perform better, but I, I explained that. But I had won the Pan American Games in 1975, the year before. I won the Pan American Games actually in 1979 as well. Uh, 75 in Mexico, 79 in Puerto Rico. Um, and I was very proud of that. And when you win and you stand on the podium and they play your national anthem, it's really cool. You no, just feel so proud of yourself. And in both games, I beat people who on paper I was not supposed to beat. Um, I had that knack, and that's where I get back to resilience, toughness. Although as I get older, I try and mellow out a little bit, mm. you know, for obvious reasons. But I had that resilience, toughness. I was able to sort of win matches that on paper I wasn't supposed to win. I very rarely lost a match that I should have won. But I often beat people who on paper would say, how did Howard win that match? I would just go in there. Even if my chances were 1 in 10 of winning, that was going to be the one. <laughs> you know? And if I had to fight the person the next day, I was going to try and make it the 1 in 10 again. So that was... Um, 
And then in 1980, Canada boycotted the Moscow Games. And had you asked me uh, at the time, because I thought this through, was I in favor of the boycott? My answer at the time was, if me not going to the Moscow Games could save one Afghanistanian life, then who am I to want to go, you know, to, to go to the Games? That was what I was thinking. But I realized or I realized shortly after that it was just a sham and that the athletes were just used politically. And uh, I think that's a bit shameful. Um, so it changed your, your view on that? Well, it changed my view. I just realized, you know, early that, you know, the politics, but politics has always been there. Uh, politics is still there. Politics, is, I think, is getting even worse now with the Internet and You know, we, 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 we read what's going on, how people are using our data to, to, uh, to, to influence the, what they call the persuadables in relation to votes and stuff. It's really fascinating. But I will share one amusing story. One of my teammates, uh, when I was on the Olympic team for 1980, um, he, he bought a Lada, you know, the Russian car. Well, yeah, if yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a Russian car Lada. And I said to him, now, of course, he wasn't on, he wasn't on the Olympic team. Um, Canadian Olympic team. And I said, Bruce, I said, why did you know? I said, are you in favor of the boycott? He says, oh yeah, sure. I said, so why'd you buy a Lada? And what do you think Rodolfo, his answer was? Because I could save a few hundred dollars. <laughs> so like, you know, like my goodness, you know, like shit, you want me to stay home from the, my Olympic dream? And you're, and, and you're buying a Russian car because <laughs> you can save a few hundred dollars? My goodness. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm, oh, we're still friends and all, but it's just like, wow. <laughs> so, you know, these are things, but I, I will say it's not because of the boycott that it, it detracted greatly from my, my you know, I, I don't look back with, with, with uh, you know, resentment or anything. I mean, it was too bad. Uh, I remember working for the International Olympic Committee a number of years later, I don't know, maybe 10 years later, we were actually in the stadium where the opening ceremonies for the Moscow Games took place. And I remember feeling, you know, uh, feeling something deep inside. Like I said, wow, you know, it just it just brought me back to that, to that time. Um. Oh, thank you for telling me this, but I just want to hear a bit more about school. How, how, yeah, school. Uh, school. How, how you were, how, how was the experience of going to school? You mentioned a bit about balancing out, but yeah, what, what I, kind of student were you when you I, were in school? I don't know how I did it sometimes, quite frankly. You know, sometimes they say the busier you are, the more you do and more efficiently. And that is true. And, yeah. and I, I fully believe that. And I'm not working much now, and I joke with my friends Because uh, you know, I joke with my friends, you think you're busy now working. Wait till you stop working, then you'll see how busy you really are. You know, it's just amazing. But how did I, I balance it? Um, I, 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 depending on the time of year, um, like before the Canadian Championships, and I was obviously uh, numerous times Canadian champion. I should say, I did freestyle in Greco. I represented Canada more often in Greco. Um, But I, 
and I was both a freestyle champion and a Greco champion, but I didn't always make it as number one in freestyle. So I didn't represent Canada in freestyle as often as I did in Greco. The truth was I was a better freestyler. I held my own much better in freestyle than I did in Greco. But um, so I, I would basically juggle. And, you know, if it was exam time, then I'd miss a few practices, you know, like I miss a few. So I'd only work out three times a week, four instead of like seven, eight or something. I don't know. But, you know, during exam time, I really focused on exams. I had a friend. I'd come back to practice after exams. And when we were like sparring or doing technique, he'd hold my arm and he'd feel my bicep. And he'd say, oh, I guess nowadays... You're not supposed to say these things, but he says, your arm feels like a girl's arm, you know, (laughs) sorry, women, I'm not, you know, but I mean, sort of, I lost my muscle, you know, back then, you, you, anyway, but, um, you know, um, so, and then, um, and then when it became, so, before the championships, I would work my, you know, work very hard training, and then before my exams, I'd work very hard uh, studying, but yeah. I just did them in parallel. Even the first Pan Am Games, they were actually delayed, and they were in September '75 instead of in um, the summer. So I took like a stack of engineering books with me to to Mexico, and I used to joke because I put them under my bed. I said maybe while I'm sleeping, you know, the, the information is, 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 yeah, exactly. Through <laughs> osmosis is maybe going into my head. Um, but I passed. I had this snack even for exams. I would just, for me, exams were like a competition. And there's one amusing story. There was a hockey player. And um, I remember during one exam, the exam was at 9 o'clock. So you get there 8.30 or so. This is a law exam. Everyone's kind of downstairs by the locker, smoking their cigarettes and drinking their coffee. What do I do? I go into the library because I still have 30 minutes to study. Mm. <laughs> and who do I see? The hockey player. You know, you see the two athletes. We're there studying right to the very end. And it's, it's just kind of funny that uh, I just... And, and the exam, I was so... So I just performed to my maximum during the exams. And Did, and did you view it like as a... Like as a sporting event, did you view it like as a competition? I, I viewed it as a as a challenge. As a challenge. Yeah, as a competition, a challenge, and not quite sporting because it's not really that physical. Maybe a little bit. Um, but like but, you were still with the same level of intensity where you well, were starting. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And uh, when you were in engineering school, engineering. What did you a, imagine the the future to be? Did you imagine you were going to become an engineer? You see. Uh, first, I, 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 uh, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. If you ask me now, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But I think I'm pretty grown up now. But I still don't know what I want to be, you know? And I'm still wondering. Um, but I went to see a guidance counselor. I remember after uh, CGEP in, in Quebec, they had 11 years high school, two years pre-university or CGEP and then university. So I saw this um, one counselor and she said, why haven't you been thinking of this? Like, she made me feel like an idiot. I, did, I didn't know what I want to do. So I felt bad. I went and I saw another counselor and he said, look, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. I want a good job. I want to make some money. You know, uh, he says, okay, why don't you do engineering and an MBA? So I said, okay. And that's how I started engineering. And the first year of engineering, I actually went to Simon Fraser University in BC as a visiting student. Then second year, I went back to McGill to continue my engineering. 
And it took me four years to get my degree in engineering instead of three, uh, partly because of the visiting student and partly because I withdrew a semester during, uh, in the lead up to the Montreal Olympic Games. And I remember in engineering, they said, look to your left and look to your right. Only one of you is going to make it. But yet we all helped each other much more than when I was in law school. In law school, I think kind of everyone can pass if you just, you know, study yeah. reasonably. Um, but in engineering, you had to just work so hard. And I constantly, sometimes we had the answer books. They'd give us homework assignments. I guess what I'm saying is engineering was much more difficult to pass than law was. Uh, of course, I mean, you have to be really smart to be a good lawyer, just like you have to be really smart to be a good engineer. But to get your degree engineering... The threshold is higher in engineering, you think? Yes. And people say, and even this is something I realized that, that's cool. I've used both... People say, hey, you've developed both parts of your brain. You know, like, hey, yeah, I never thought of that. But, so anyways, but, but when, you were, uh, when you were being an athlete at the highest level... Did you ever consider that would be like a career or you always thought no. of... You mean sport? Yeah. No, for the simple reason that um, you don't make money in, in wrestling. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm talking Olympic style wrestling, not, you know, WWF, you know, where they wrestle in a ring. That's a bit theatrics yeah. and stuff. But so, so um, for you, this was always like something that was like complementary, something that you yeah. enjoyed doing and you thought that it brought you... Uh, I don't know, like many benefits, yeah, but you never just, thought of it as a, I never a profession. Thought, I never thought I'd do it as a profession. It just fulfilled me. Yeah. It just made me feel alive. I remember even, this may sound funny, when I was, um, sorry, I'm writing things down now that I don't <laughs> want to forget saying copying. Uh, when, at one point, again, these are odd things, but that's who I am. I share openly, and, and I, I'm hoping you're... Your listeners will find it interesting. I remember at one point, I was about 25, and I had this bizarre thought. Like, how would I feel if someone said I was going to die in six months, like of cancer or something? And I said to myself, that would be okay. Because I felt that my life that I'd lived until that moment was so full. Hmm. I had nothing to complain about. And an interesting thing is... Uh, the minute you're born, you are susceptible to death, <laughs> you know? But anyway, we'll, we'll leave philosophy out of it for now. Um, so in engineering, I was constantly copying other people's homework assignments, but hear me out on this one. And we had, we copied each other's homework assignments. And we had even some of the answer books with like five lines of the equation to take it to the answer. And... Sometimes it took me 30 minutes to get from one line to the next line in the answer book. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I passed engineering with decent grades is I had a, a golden rule. I never copied anything that I, didn't, that I did not understand. Yeah. So I copied, but only when I, if and when I understood it. And I think that's how anyone passes something like engineering because it is really difficult. And it was funny in school sometimes. Another story which, which um, comes to, to mind is I remember, I think this was more when I was in law school, uh, people were saying to me, um, I can't wait to finish school. I want to get out and finish school, finish school. And I'd be there and I'd say, that's bizarre because I was enjoying school because sometimes I go for a run for an hour and go sit in the back of the class with a towel around my neck, sweating and taking notes. Like it was complex. It was, and I'd be saying to myself, these people are in a rush to get out and finish school. It's like, they're saying to me, I want to grow old and die. 
It's yeah. like I just found it bizarre. Um, I think that kind of covers um, school. Well, after school, I did my articling. I never worked as an engineer. I, I oh, in fact, after one year in my first year back at McGill in engineering, which was like after the Simon Fraser year. Uh, Simon Fraser did not have engineering, but I took a lot of the math and the physics courses. Yeah. So back at McGill, uh, you know, the year I heard, look to your left, look to your right, only one of you makes it. Um, I decided I want to study law. So I went to the law faculty. Then I went back to engineering. I said, can you give me a reference to one of my profs? And he says, why don't you finish your engineering degree first? So I said, okay. <laughs> I finished my engineering degree. All through that time, I was wrestling. And even when I got into law, the fellow who interviewed me gave me a hard time. He's he, like, as though I, in order for me to be accepted into law, I had to stop wrestling. And I kind of said, no, I'm not stopping wrestling. And I did well in law. Then at one point, I wanted to do a law MBA degree. This was like two years later, let's say two years into law. And the woman I saw, unfortunately, the person I saw, she said, no, I, yeah, you were going to do the law and, and, and MBA which is normally five years, squeeze it into four. And I said, I want to do that, but I want to squeeze it back out to five because I'm wrestling. And she refused. She said, no. So, so you didn't do that? So I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I continued to wrestle. And I, uh, so, so because you didn't want to go to, you didn't want to go to school, that's why you went to law school? Uh, because I didn't want to... You, you, want to, you didn't want to leave school like your colleagues were saying? No, no it, you know something? It wasn't because I didn't want to leave school. It just... After engineering, I decided I wanted to study law because if I wanted to be an engineer, then I think I, what, what I would have done was work as an engineer and then at night go to wrestling practice. Yeah. And that, get, that, that gets back to what I said before. You know, it, you know, I wish I could have, in a way, had more time to train. Maybe I could have maybe won a medal at the Olympic Games or something or, or been a better wrestler. I had sometimes people who had flashes of brilliance on the mat, but, um, you know, to be a top, top, top level athlete, you have to, uh, you know, you have to train, especially in a sport like wrestling. I yeah. mean, you, you know, you can't cheat you can't <laughs> like with your it. training. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and the beauty of wrestling also, it's so much like life. I mean, I did well, uh, you know, I won some big competitions, but sometimes I just got thumped. And it, it humbles you. It really, um, it, it's really, it, it was fascinating experience. I remember even one time I got injured in a match in a, a competition in Cuba. And I looked at my, I, I hurt my shoulder. So I was like wrestling with one and a half arms. I couldn't, you know, my one arm wasn't, couldn't do that much. And I looked at my opponent and it was kind of a weak opponent. And I spoke with the coach. I said, I, I want to wrestle the match. And it was like an experiment. Can I beat the guy? Even though <laughs> you're not 100%. Even though, I mean, uh, often you're not 100%, but here I wasn't even close to 100%. <laughs> and he didn't know I was hurt. So I would take him down, and he would do something, and I was like, oh, you know, and then I'd he'd score, and he was all excited. In the end, I beat him, and, and it was like so cool, you know? Yeah. Um, or, I mean, I have other stories, but I could talk just on, on you know, and, and then the next match, because I had advanced in the draw, the guy was too good, so I, I didn't do that because that would have been also dangerous for me. Or even, you know, other, other matches, uh, you know, one time a guy had me, uh, he was pushing so hard, but I had my body in the right way. But actually, the way he had me, I, he was pushing against the, uh, uh, I don't know, um, 
maybe the blood, the, the artery or something. And I was starting to basically fall asleep, <laughs> starting to become unconscious to the point that I, I couldn't even move. Like I just, and then just before I was like so close to like being out, he gave up on trying to turn me that way. And I remember that um, I started to wake up <laughs> and he was all scrambling on me and I like slowly got my energy back, but fast enough that I was able to continue the match. And uh, when these, uh, it was like cool looking back and I said, wow, that was cool, you know? When, when you are like uh, recounting this, how is it going through your head? Like, is it everything like, does it slow down and you see like every move? Uh, no, I would like... say on this story, um, no. But there's other stories like, you know, certain victories where it can slow down and I could see everything that uh, that that's happening that right. happened like one time I was fighting this fellow very good and I had him on his back and there was just a little space between his shoulder and the mat just a touch and I couldn't close the space I wanted to pin him and um so I said I got an idea I moved the way I was and I blocked the view of the ref so he couldn't see if there was a space or not and I made this huge grunt And the ref thought with that grunt, I probably closed the space. Yeah. He called the pin. Between me and you, the space got bigger because when I moved, <laughs> <You're left right. laughs> I, I didn't have him as good. But I will say, in all fairness, he did not complain whatsoever because when you're on your back with your shoulder that close to the mat and they call a pin, you don't complain. Yeah. You stay off your back. And don't have your shoulder so close to the mat. Anyway, so that one, when I think about it, I could maybe see that a little more happened. slowly. But really, uh, you know, when I get the memory, I just get the memory. I don't really I go fast time, slow time. And like, you had like this amazing uh, mixture of experiences, your uh, background as a wrestler, engineering, and law school. What were you thinking of taking... All of that experience to the next phase in... You know, I never... And I think that was maybe one of my weaknesses. I never spent enough time with having a life strategy. Even sometimes in wrestling, I wouldn't watch my opponents that carefully. And I think in that sense, there might be something good about that because you don't want to always worry, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? I think life divinity or whatever it takes you you know if you're if you're kind of doing what you should be doing doing what you ought to do then you don't have to worry about winning or losing just do what you ought to do and the right things happen so after law I got a job as an articling student and at the time Uh, you know, like a stagiaire in, in French, you yeah. know. Is that a requirement to, to get the bar? Or? Exactly. I, I passed the bar exam first time, no problem. But nonetheless, my French wasn't that good. And we were six articling students at a prestigious law firm. None of us got hired back. And I think in my case, what was really didn't help is at that time, my French was not that good. Because, you know, when I was born and raised as an Anglophone, um, I... I um, 
I didn't have that much opportunity to speak French. We learned it in school, but I mean, one hour a day, you know, mm-hmm. isn't enough. And I lived in an Engl- uh, Anglophone environment. So my French wasn't that good. And that may have been one of the reasons, or maybe they just didn't want us and they hired other people, whatever. And then one of the people who worked uh, at that law firm, in fact, he sort of, he was very involved in sport. Um, he got me, he told me there was an opening at the IOC. It was also through him that I got a job at that law firm, although he wasn't, he didn't interview me. He just told me because he was involved in sport. He was the uh, president of the Canadian Olympic Association, Association at the time. And um, Dick Pound is his name. And um, so, so he told me that there was an opening at the International Olympic Committee. And at that moment, I remember my mother saying, how come you're not applying for any other jobs? That's all I wanted. That's the job I wanted. And luckily, I got it. And it was in which year? Uh, that was in December 1984. 84. And the reason I got it, and this could be interesting to your listeners, is because I was, had no experience. And the person hiring at the time, the director at the time, there wasn't really an organigram then at the IOC. There was like a director at the top, and there was like everyone else was at the bottom. Hmm. You know, there's no pyramid. She hired me and another uh, female lawyer just out of law school. She wanted two in-house lawyers, but who posed no threat whatsoever to her. She shortly after left the IOC uh, because uh, the president then Juan Antonio Samaranch, there were some conflicts between them and Mm. she left. Then I was, I would say, and then the other lawyer, the woman lawyer, she left also, because I think she was connected more to the director who was uh, yeah. forced out. And then I was, I will even say prematurely, made director of legal affairs with a legal department of one, okay? But this is back in 84. The IOC has grown tremendously since then. It's been a long and super interesting ride. And when I left the IOC as director of legal affairs uh, at the end of 2017, there were 17 people in the department. Okay. Yeah, uh, not all lawyers, are, you know, that's including... Um, administrative staff as well. So we went from 1 to 17. And it was just an incredible ride. And the IOC uh, evolved so much during that time. And um, what, was the, what were the topics that you were dealing with as, uh, as you okay. joined the IOC? In, in no particular order, um, subjects ranging from drafting the host city contract, which is the contract that the IOC signs with the city that the IOC members elect to host the Olympic Games, and with the National Olympic Committee of that city's country. So that's the whole city contract. In, um, just a, as an aside, for the Moscow Games, take a guess how long that whole city contract was. This is the contract awarding the Olympic Games. Do you want to guess? Or <laughs> Half a page. Half a page. Half a page. Oh, my God. Now, when I was there towards the end... The contract was like over 50 pages, single-spaced, yes. with thousands of pages of annexes. Okay, it's, it was really... So the, back then it was more like a gentleman's agreement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know why also, Rodolfo? Because there's a lot less money involved. Yeah. Once the money, and, and where did the money come from? Um, you know, there were sponsors many years ago, like even in the 20s. I think Coke was even a sponsor in the 20s. But what really changed things was um, broadcast revenues. 
<laughs> so what were some of the other topics that you dealt with you were at the IOC? Yes, in addition to, I mentioned the whole city contract, in addition to that, we would work on broadcasting agreements. Broadcasting. Uh, although for broadcasting agreements, we, we sometimes work with outside counsel, especially for the U.S. broadcast agreement and some others. We sponsorship agreements, sponsorship, suppliership, licensing agreements, intellectual property. That's a huge area, actually. Um, you know, you have to protect the Olympic symbol, the emblems of the Olympic Games, which are consists of the Olympic symbol and another distinctive element. You have to protect the word Olympic, etc. Not always easy, and, and the protection is better in some countries than others. And then also there's uh, other issues like uh, doping is a huge issue as well. You also uh, dealt with do oh, doping? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we dealt with doping. I mean... Uh, and I forgot a huge one, amendments to the Olympic Charter, okay. you know, drafting the Olympic Charter, well, it was drafted, but we have to amend it regularly to keep it up to date with the changing world, uh, the world, um, sorry, the anti-doping rules of the IOC, which are based on the world anti-doping rules. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned data protection, which is coming a new issue. Yeah. Big, uh, big as well. So, um, And all of I, this was done with the 17... That seems a lot of work for... Uh, I'm smiling again. It is a lot of work. I had to constantly fight to, to, to get help. Of course, we, we use, uh, in a number of areas, we use outside counsel. And consultants. But yeah. I was trying to keep our, our, our legal counsel. fees down. So, I uh, see. Anyway, so I think that's a, a, a list of a number of things we that we... we the legal department works on, albeit non-exhaustive. And we're there to support all the other departments. Even sometimes, you know, the communications department, if they have to do a press release, depending on what it's about, like if it's, a, if it's a press release on a doping case, you know, they run it by us or they just cut and paste our decision. So there's, um, you know, there's work with the medical department, with the Olympic Games department, I forgot, so many things. The entry form, that's another big one that all the athletes sign, which, for example, says that if you're going to, um, if you have a dispute upon the occasion of the Olympic Games, you have to go to the Court of Arbitration for sport. Okay. On the CAS, exactly. Yeah. On the other hand, we have all the accredited photographers sign a photographer's undertaking, ensuring that the photos that they take can only be used for editorial purposes. We don't want them to sell their photo to sell a photo to a competitor of an Olympic sponsor to use for advertising. Plus, we also tell them they cannot, even the Olympic sponsors can't use those ads unless they get the consent of the athletes appearing therein. So, so those are just a few other uh, uh, ideas. I've probably left out a, a lot of things, but I think it gives you a good feel. Broadcast revenues. Huge amounts of money in broadcast revenues. And also we have now a more extensive sponsorship program. So because more money was involved, you know, that changes things. So when, what was the, when was the turning point for that? Um, I would say, and I'm saying this in, in a positive way, uh, during the presidency of Juan Antonio Samaranch, and I think even the LA Games helped a bit too, because they, you know, brought commercialization in. And I believe that to a large extent, uh, that's helpful, you, you know, to have sponsors and to, to get money from broadcasting, broadcasters. I mean, you need that to help uh, subsidize 
or pay for more than subsidize the organization of the games. Where you know one has to be careful is that the broadcasters and the sponsors are not allowed to interfere. And I would say for the most part, at least insofar as the IOC is concerned, I think the IOC has pretty good control over that. In other words, um, they will, let's say, give certain events in primetime USA because the US broadcaster NBC pays so much, but they will not have the marathon run at a time where the runners will be running, you know, in, 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 in the full heat of the day. Mm. But there's a little bit of play there. But, that, you know, to a certain extent, that's understandable. It's a question of degree, and I'm, I'm not going to draw that line now in this discussion. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, well, you didn't ask the question yet, but like one problem is, is still doping. Still a lot of doping in, in sport. Yeah, is, I mean, I, I, I follow sports a lot. I love sports. Yeah. I, I, and I, re, I relate to what you're saying. I never competed at the highest levels. But it seems that nowadays, in, across all sports, any sport that you see, uh, we're seeing the best athletes that have ever competed in time, uh, in yeah. history. Why is that? Is that because of the technology advances? They can train better, they you know, can do things? Or I, maybe there's something else? You know, I'm smiling. Uh, your, your, your listeners can't hear my smile. <laughs> well, maybe they hear it a little bit in my voice. But um, to a certain extent, it's because look at the human body. You know, we're getting bigger, stronger, faster. So to a certain extent, it's normal. But I think in some cases, obviously, uh, doping has, has helped. In some cases, obviously. Uh, technology too, yeah. and, and this is a fascinating topic, you know. And again, I, I, I like covering more things with you. But even let's say, look at the swimsuits, you know. Like at one point, you know, because I remember the beginning when they had these really expensive swimsuit, you know, these suits that swimsuits that covered the whole body. It was in Sydney, they were very in expensive, yeah. yeah. And some of the nations couldn't afford them. But then again, I guess the the suppliers would give free suits because then they would get, you know, publicity. But I'm just saying, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's good to improve technology. I mean, why not? That's the world. Let's improve. Let's improve. But let's not also get away from the true meaning of sport. You know, um, when I was a kid, I used to watch this program, Wide World of Sport, and they spoke about I mean, the, the agony of defeat and the ecstasy of victory. I may not be getting it perfect, but it's kind of that. And that, for me, is the beauty of sport. You know, the, 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 I prefer the ecstasy of victory, of course, <laughs> but the agony of defeat also has something charming in it as well. And I think nowadays, too much emphasis is placed on winning. But let me be clear, Rodolfo, if I'm competing, I want to win. But I think too much emphasis is placed on winning. And I've seen matches where it's so close. It comes down, you can almost like flip a coin how close it is. And sometimes it could even be a bad ref call or just unfortunate bounce. One team beats the other. And then sometimes I see the other team with their heads down and, and, and uh, shameful. And I feel like going up to them and like shaking them and say, my goodness, man, be proud. You know, and, and then there was this one, you know, um, <laughs> I told you at the beginning I was scared sometimes I talk, you know, too, too much. Uh, not too much, but, you know, 
I won't say the name of this company, but there was this one sporting goods company that had this advertising campaign. You don't win the silver, you lose the gold. Now, sometimes that is true, mm. but what a horrible thing to teach the youth. Because sometimes you may lose the gold, but many times, how can you belittle becoming second in the Olympics or in the world or even in a, in a, in a, in a, in a local competition? Would you lost the gold? No, man, you won the silver. Congratulations. It's just too much emphasis. And that's one of the problems. Now, I'm get, you know, we're sort of going f not full circle, but we're, you know, with the world. So much emphasis is on these, you know, name, fame, glory, money. And, and we're missing some of the spiritual aspects. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, for me, uh, the reason why I love sports is because they show uh, the athletes pushing to the limit. They, they're inspirational. They, they bring the best out of, of everyone. And I, I've told my wife this, that if an uh, alien race once comes to Earth and they're like, tell us humans, why should we not eliminate you all uh, from the face of the Earth? If, and what, we, if, sorry, some if, alien, alien oh, yeah, race yeah. comes okay. and they're yeah. like, why shouldn't we eliminate you? And I would just show them the, the Olympics. And this is what we're capable of. This is what we yeah. can do. This is what, yeah, this, this is us functioning at the highest level. And that's for me is the reason why I love sports. But, you know, Rodolfo, I agree with what you're saying. The inspiration. I mean, that's why I still love sport. I don't watch it as much because I find it has evolved in a way, maybe it's because I'm just getting older, you know, so as you get older, you turn to different things, but I love the inspirational part of sport. I love the ecstasy of victory, even the agony of, of, of defeat, and I love at the beginning of the matches, watching when they play the national anthem. Like, for me, it's like super important, and, and, and I, I look at their faces, yeah. I just find that, and I look at their intensity, man, I really... I'm sorry. Because they prepare their whole life just for that moment, yeah. and they're there, like... Leaving it. But you know what bothers me? And again, I don't want to mention names. There's certain sports where these guys are warriors and they, they play their heart out with true grit and respect. But there's other sports where I find lack of respect on the field, simulation, hypocrisy, you know, dishonesty. And when I watch that, it really turns me off. Really turns me off. And again, I come back to, I mean, when I play, I want to win. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes too much emphasis is, 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 is placed on the winning. It's like people don't understand that sport goes so much further than just winning, than just winning and yeah. losing. And I think it's a pity. But I think, you know, sometimes the state of the world is a little bit off the racks, yeah. off the rails, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to hear your opinion on is, and you mentioned it already, when politics gets mixed with, with sports. For me, for example, I, I love basketball. And I, I see when there's a discussion on who's the best player ever, it's usually Michael Jordan and sometimes LeBron James. I love both of them, and both of them were amazing and they're amazing athletes. But where I, I put the, the line and why I'm thinking that maybe LeBron is higher than Jordan is because 
he is committed to something bigger than its sport. Uh-huh. And maybe sometimes this is sometimes this is political, sometimes this can be uh, something else, but how do you view this? Is- you know, again, Rodolfo, your, your comment makes me smile. Uh, one thing that, um, well, you see, it's funny, you're saying who's better, but you're bringing in more than just sport. It's funny. So you may be talking who's a better person, who's a better player, but, but who's a better shooter, who's a better rebounder. One thing which also really, um, I don't want to say irritates because, you know, it's not good to get irritated. Um, or at least not often, is um, when they keep saying rubbish, like the best player ever. For me, that's such a bunch. Can I say the word bullshit? (laughs) It's like the best player ever. How do you compare someone from 1928 to 1988 to 2019? It's just, for me, it's just journalistic rubbish. The best player ever. Why can't we say one of the best players ever? Why does it have to be the best player ever? You know, it's always the best match ever, the best player ever. The best. It was like one of the best. One of, it's like, it's all like marketing and rubbish. And, it's and, true. And, and, and this is to what you were saying about winning and this uh, obsession with if you're not winning, you're losing. Yeah. But, but, well, let me frame it differently. Do you think that athletes, when they have this big platform and everyone is listening to them should they stick to sports or you know again that is a super interesting question again you know like you hear the people um let's say kneeling during national anthems and stuff you know this one i'll give an answer but i really would have to research and think more not that i'm copping out but my quick answer is well yes and no what do i mean by that um we have to be careful. If everyone starts making statements, you know, let's say on the Olympic podium, someone's going to make a statement, the competition will turn into a circus. Hmm. So, no, I do not agree with that. But I'll tell you what I would agree with. Let's have a forum. You say, you know, let's say once a day, once a week, I don't know. Get all the athletes, those who want to give their opinions on the world, let them give their opinions. But don't take that onto the podium. I don't think, I don't think that's right. Although some of their causes are, are really justified because there are many injustices going on in the world. Many. But you don't, you know, where do you draw the line? So again, my answer is I, I think in the sport itself, on the playing field, you're there to play sport. It should be about sport. Even like, let's say, with the, with the Grammy or Emmy, whatever awards they call them, Academy Awards. Like, so what if this person's an actor or an actress? Like, why do I have to listen to their opinion, quite frankly? Where, what about the other side? Sometimes they're right and brilliant. Sometimes they're wrong or they're right to one person, wrong to another. Then why don't we have before or after the, the award ceremonies or, or I'm talking about, let's say, the, the Academy Awards or at the Olympic Games, for example... And I think you can even do that at the games. You know, you can go and ask an athlete what you want after you say, oh, what do you think of this? That doesn't bother me so, so much. In fact, although one should also be careful because it's not because a brilliant athlete thinks something that is right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you've got to be careful. It's dangerous. But if you want to go there, fine. But get it off the field. You know, make a special say, okay, so all the athletes who want to place, speak up. There's a place for... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what I would say. 
Yes, I, I, I agree with you because if it politicizes the events, it's also not good. And what you're saying is also really true. Who makes them authorities on this? Maybe they're not right. It yeah. could be, they could be, but they could not be. There's so much gray. You know, the, the world is not in you know, black and white. There are so many shades of gray. And nowadays, it's funny, I'm getting a little political now. <laughs> nowadays, um, not only... Um, some of these people don't even care what the facts are. They just get emotional or what they call politically correct, just becomes emotional. And even, you sometimes don't even know if those are the facts. Because there's so much, or from what I see, from what I understand, a lot of manipulation of the facts. And yeah. I find that, uh, you know, um, I won't say worrisome. I mean, you know, I get on with my life. I do what I can to make this world uh, a better place, you know. But, uh, I mean, right now we live in... At least in the since I have memory, uh, in times that are so divisive on everything, and sports yeah. is something that always brings us together. Something that you you may disagree with your neighbor who has a different political view, but both of you watch a match, and you both of you are there watching the match, enjoying. And but even there, Rodolfo, this is where I, I maybe I'm I'm a bit you know maybe I've become a dinosaur, you know. But then again, don't count me out either. I agree in principle with what you're saying. But I think even sometimes in sport now, it's lost. Maybe it depends on the sport. Well, actually, I'm Canadian. Let me plug ice hockey. <laughs> you know, these guys are warriors. And they fight. And, and you know, sometimes it gets a little overly rough, but it's so intense. The, the series ends. They shake hands like gentlemen. You, you know what I'm saying? As, as, And so in some ways, yes, there's always some bad examples, you know, even in hockey and all sports. But I find that the whole thing of fair play, I, I, I think that the athletes of old, and maybe I'm wrong on this one, were more fair play, had better values than, generally speaking, the athletes of today. Mm. I think a lot of them today, they're spoiled. I mean, look, they get so much money, they're treated like gods. So I can't blame them for feeling, you know, one understands why they feel entitled, why they feel... And, and so for me, and it's funny, as I talk this, it makes me think, you know, what I'm doing in the future. For, for me... I would like to see, uh, you know, this, this, this fairness, this, this, I think as you said, this is inspiration, fair play, uh, brought in a little more like, I think, the way it was more so when I was younger. Hmm. Um, again, I'm not sure, you know, people may disagree with me on that one. Uh, maybe less so the older sports fans than the younger ones but now it's it's um anyway i i I'll, <laughs> let me leave that uh something i also want to hear your thoughts um what are your recommendations to young professionals i mean maybe lawyers because you're a lawyer i'm a lawyer that want to get into this 
sporting Be, area? Into the, the sports, international organizations, like law, what, what would you recommend? Uh, good question. I would recommend that they try and get in touch with um, organizations in the sporting area, and that comes at all different levels. I mean, at the top, you have international sport federations, IF. You know, there's one IF recognized by the IOC for each sport. Then each IF has affiliated national federation, national federations. Like, in other words, in each country, there's a national federation of that sport affiliated to that particular international federation for that sport. So you can get involved in the national federations. And then they have, let's say, in Canada, there would be provincial or in other countries, state yeah. federations. You know, that's sort of like a... And get in at whatever level you can. They Try and work for a professional sports team. Try and work for a city that's maybe bidding to host an Olympic Games or a World Championships. If there's, let's say, a World's Fair going on, any event, it doesn't have to be a sport event. I mean, if, if you want to get into events, you know, any type of event, um, a lot of the same principles are applying, like, you know, broadcast, sponsorship. Um, so those are just a few ideas. They have a lot of courses out there Uh, I know in Europe and I think in North America as well, where they call, uh, you know, sports law courses. Yes. So obviously if you do a sports law course, it may help you to more easily get a job in the sports field. At one time they used to joke and say, there's no such thing as sports law. But I, I mean, whatever, you know. But, but, but um, so, Rodolfo, those are a few ideas. Um, and for lawyers, I would also say, You know, just because you have a law degree doesn't mean you have to work as a lawyer. Yeah. I, I, I say that sincerely. I think the, the field has changed a, lot. a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm being more diplomatic than you. You no, said but, a but lot. It, it, it has changed even within my experience as a lawyer in the last couple of years. And I think that law offers a lot of flexibilities that other careers do not. So you can do a variety yeah. of things. You know, I'm sorry, you're interviewing me, but in a way, I, I wish that we could have, because I'm sure that some of what I'm saying is making you think of things that you would love to say, and I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off, maybe no, because no, no, I'm no. supposed to, but, but I, mean, <laughs> but, but I would love to. But this is about you, this is about you, but, yeah, but, but, uh, but a lot I can feel saying, that you have, you know, good uh, opinions on some of these things as no, well. No, because like, a lot of what you're saying, I can relate, and actually, it makes me think, well, maybe I'm not on the... I'm on the right track a bit, <laughs> because based on your experience, you certainly have something to tell us. Now, I mean, I, I, I don't want to take uh, much more of your time, but is there anything else that you want to you discuss know, that maybe we missed? Uh, I'm sure that <laughs> there's a lot of things, but on the other hand, I think we did a pretty good, uh, oh, I hope your listeners think so, more so, <laughs> I think we did a pretty good job of, of covering many things. Uh, what I'll say now is just maybe to end. Uh, so I'm working much less now. I'm yeah. still special legal advisor of the IOC, but the reality is I'm not working that much. I'm kind of doing a life inventory, wondering where I want to go from here with my life. And, uh, you know, a part of me may want to do something sporting, but I'd like to do something meaningful, you know, um, where, uh, I mean, I have nothing against earning money, but I want to do something <laughs> more so yeah. that I feel 
is meaningful, yes. meaningful to me. Uh, and, and, you know, to loosely use the term spiritual, because yeah. I think nowadays, and maybe I'll end with that, and I'm doing some spiritual courses. I'll even give it a plug. I'm uh, studying a bit of Vedanta, V-E-D-A-N-T-A. And, um, and that spirituality is, uh, I find, very grounding. It's, it's, it's just I find it so, so logical and common sense. And just like with anything, if you want to be a good athlete or if you want to be a good musician, you have to practice and I think in order to lead a really good life properly, you have to practice. Yeah. It's not something that comes, you know, uh, maybe some people have certain natural talents, just like in sport, but you have to practice. So that's what I'd say. I'll end up, you want to be good at anything to all the young <laughs> kids, if you're listening, you want to be good at something, really good at something, practice. it's so simple. Just practice. Uh, uh, I will add, and maybe... This is something that Malcolm Gladwell said, too. Of course, you have to practice in an intelligent way as well. $10,000. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you want to be good at anything, follow your heart, follow your nature, you know, do what you want, not what your parents want you to do. And you want to be good, practice, enjoy life, and do what you ought to do, and the results will come. Uh, that's a really good way to end our conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me to your house for this brief chat. And we'll talk maybe next time. Rodolfo, really, it's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Bye.